July 2016, smack in the middle of the U.S. presidential election, a strange story is published by a Russian news agency. A former Russian intelligence officer who had defected to the West had died inside the United States. The officer was Colonel Alexander Puteyev, a double agent who years earlier had secretly tipped off the FBI to the existence of a ring of sleeper agents, known as the illegals, who were living quiet lives posing as ordinary American families while they spied on U.S. political and business figures. Only Puteyev wasn't dead at all. He was living in an undisclosed location under FBI protection. The Russians were tickling the wire. It's a phrase common among law enforcement and intel types, putting out disinformation that they apparently hoped would create a stir among Pateyev's family and friends, causing phone calls to be made and emails written that would help the Russians track him down. Now a new book offers a provocative theory about the Pateyev false flag. The Russians had actually targeted Patea for assassination, the ultimate revenge for his betrayal of the motherland. But when they couldn't find him, they went next down their list of traitors, leading to the poisoning of Sergei Skripal, another former Russian spy living in Salisbury, England. It was a sign of just how aggressive Vladimir Putin's Russia has become. A useful reminder during a week the U.S. Justice Department indicts seven Russian military spies on cyber hacking charges. They were members of the very same military intelligence unit that had hacked Democratic emails during the 2016 election. We'll discuss all this with the author of that new book, The Skripal Files, and we'll dissect the new FBI report on Brett Kavanaugh on today's Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, Clydman, uh, you're a little too young for this, but when I was a kid, I used to read Mad Magazine, and I loved the regular feature Spy versus Spy, a sort of cartoon about uh, the skullduggery uh, of uh, intelligence agencies and the battles uh, inside them and between them. And um, I got to say... Uh, that's one reason I am totally addicted to these uh, spy stories uh, and, you know, the, this new theory that Pateoff, the double agent who had was so crucial in the roundup of those Russian spies, had been targeted for assassination inside the United States, uh, was a real grabber for me. For the record, I do remember uh, Mad Magazine. I used to read it as a kid. Yeah. And I was born in during the Cold <laughs> War. Uh, but it's a fascinating uh, tale um, and um, a great conversation that we have. But first, uh, we've got to get to what looks like um, 
is the, the de- denouement of uh, the story that's been riveting Washington and the country uh, for the past few weeks, and it's this confirmation war over Brett Ka- uh, Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. And um, in some ways, a spy story of its own, everybody trying to spy on, on each other and uh, into Kavanaugh's background. A- absolutely, well, yeah. Uh, and, you know, as we record this podcast, um, it is beginning to look uh, like uh, the smoke signals would suggest that Brett Kavanaugh is going to be confirmed. But with the caveat that, you know, throughout this story, there have been surprises and last minute, you know, new bits of information. So uh, we, we need to um, recognize that possibility. But right now, this FBI report that everyone has been waiting for, uh, it looks like it has not moved the ball uh, forward in terms of corroborating the underlying stories. But the report itself uh, is being attacked by Democrats. Right. And we're going to we're going to talk about that. But, you know, look, um, this does not really surprise anybody, I think. Uh uh, everybody expected that there would this would be a very quick report that what the Democrats were demanding was that the FBI speak to the witnesses who could corroborate or shoot down the um, claims of Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Ford and um, uh, any other accusers that might be out there. Uh, and um, it doesn't look like the FBI came up with anything that um, strengthened the allegations of um, Dr. Ford. Um, yet, on the other hand, it's impossible to shoot them down. And you have all these other claims about Kavanaugh's drinking and his high school yearbook uh, that may or may not uh resolve any of the murky issues here but the democrats are saying look you didn't speak to you know these 30 other witnesses who might have some useful information of course i should point out there's nothing from stopping any of those witnesses from coming forward and saying whatever they've got to say and and i suspect they will and i suspect that democrats uh, will be pushing them to come forward, and they're beginning to think about how this will play in the midterm elections. And you were saying before the show that you think this is going to this is going to get really ugly. And let me I just want to read this one uh, tweet from our uh, friend uh, Susan Glasser of the New Yorker that I think captures um, uh, the, the, this this idea that that nothing has changed, even if uh, right. Brett Kavanaugh gets on the Supreme Court. Ba- she, she tweeted, basically, we are close to being back where we were a week ago, except everyone everywhere is angrier. Right. I, 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 I totally agree. And I think that if Kavanaugh does get confirmed this weekend and is sworn in uh, immediately as he's likely to be on the Supreme Court, um, there's going to be real fury on the part of the left, of Democrats, of a lot of women's groups. Um, that's probably going to help the Democrats. They in will, the, Democrats in the will try to election. channel that fury into electoral success. Yeah, you could you could argue that the Republicans would have been better off if the Democrats are somehow able to stop Kavanaugh because their base is quite furious about the way Kavanaugh has been treated. Um, so you know, electorally. This may be uh, a, a net plus uh, for the D's, but of course the downside is um, the conservatives get a majority yeah. in the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you're beginning to hear uh, from Democrats um, 
you know, people talking about uh, impeachment, i.e. impeaching Brett Kavanaugh yeah. once he's confirmed. Um, and also uh, people writing pretty seriously uh, about uh, packing the courts. You, know, you, right. you don't need a constitutional amendment to put more uh, more uh, uh, people on the Supreme Court, just uh, an act of Congress. Um, so, I mean, another way of of, uh, of saying what Susan Glasser said in that tweet is is the old uh, talking heads song, same as it ever was. <laughs> right. Um, well, let's explore that uh, uh, FBI background investigation. And we have Asha Rangappa, uh, a former FBI counterintelligence agent and now a senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. Asha, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you about the FBI report, a background report on uh, Brett Kavanaugh. It seemed to me, uh, you know, everybody is putting so much emphasis on what's in it, what might not be in it, that the FBI was in kind of a really uh, no-win position here in trying to produce this report within a week. I think that's right. Um, you know, it's important to understand that background investigations are not normal criminal investigations. They're not here to uh, figure out conclusively what happened. They are there to look into uh, potential derogatory information that has surfaced about this candidate and basically provide more information and context so that the decision maker, who is not the FBI, would be the White House in this case, can decide whether or not this impacts Judge Kavanaugh's suitability for this position. Now, in my opinion, I think that the right way to go about this is for the White House to have said, we have these allegations, we need you to find out all the relevant information uh, surrounding this and let the FBI do it um, and make the determination on who exactly they would need to interview to cover all of their leads. I wrote a piece along with Ambassador Norm Eisen, who had worked in the White House and reviewed these FBI background checks, and a former counsel for uh, a House Congressional Committee, who also reviewed these yesterday. And we went through the allegations and found at least 30 people that should have been interviewed in order to make sure that they got information from anyone who had it, as well as exculpatory information from people who may have had it. So let me, oh, well, let me actually, let me follow up on this, because um, 30 people, and chief among them, I would assume, would be Dr. Blasey Ford um, and Brett Kavanaugh, uh, the uh, accused and the accuser. Uh, and as I recall, when uh, a few days after uh, the J Senate Judiciary Committee wrapped up the uh, Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing, and then Anita Hill surfaced and sent her uh, memo into the Senate Judiciary Committee. That very day, the FBI FBI agents were on her doorstep, and they interviewed her, and then they interviewed Clarence Thomas. So the whole ethos of the FBI is, you know, uh, uh, running down every lead um, and not leaving uh, any stones unturned. I, I, I get that this is not a criminal investigation, but what justification could there be for not interviewing uh, Dr. Blasey Ford and uh, Brett Kavanaugh? 
As a matter of normal investigatory procedure, there would be no reason to not interview them and not, to not interview them first. The only reason they wouldn't is if they were instructed not to uh, by the consumer of the background check in this case, the White House. That is my opinion. As you said, in this kind of situation, the first place that you would start is where the person making the allegation. Um, and then you would give the person a, who is being accused a chance to respond. I know there have been some prosecutors on Twitter who've said, well, they might be the last people that you would uh, interview. That might be true in a criminal investigation where they don't know they're being investigated. That's not the case here. This okay. is not. But they haven't know, been, in, they haven't been interviewed at all. Exactly. You would start with them because otherwise you don't have a baseline narrative on which to figure out who to, like, to, you know, background checks start there. It's kind of an expanding concentric circle. So you start from the very middle and then you go outward from there. And then if there's more people that would, you could talk to, you go out, outward from there until you're maybe two or three degrees well, removed. So you're really getting uh, full information. Right. Um, even in the most limited situation, you would start with these two people, and then you would go to immediate witnesses, and then other people who had it. So, look, and now to be fair, I mean, both Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh, and Dr. Ford testified at length under oath before the uh, before the committee gave their account, conflicting accounts of of uh, the events at issue, uh, and uh, and Kavanaugh was also questioned uh, uh, a number of times by committee staff about these allegations. But let me ask you about this list of thirty. But come on, Michael. I mean, yeah. that was a joke. Well, that was a joke. We, we, I mean, well, let's, I mean, we need to be on. We need uh, to be clear. The Senate sure. questioning on both sides for both witnesses was not reflective of what the FBI, the how the FBI would conduct an interview. I'm right, sorry. Right. Um, you know, you had uh, the prosecutor who probed on particular details of Christine Blasey's account. I think the FBI would have really, you know would have probed her memory to, to find out, you know, more about that summer, if she could nail down the date, if there were other people, you know, that they didn't go I, down that road. No, I, and I, then I, with, with Judge Kavanaugh, I mean, they mm-hmm. didn't even ask anything. They actually fired the prosecutor right. altogether. So I don't think that that is a sufficient basis I, I, uh, to replace an interview. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. But I want to get to this 30 list of 30 witnesses um, that you say should be interviewed. I mean. Look, Dr. Ford gave a very made a very specific and damaging allegation about what she says happened to her. And she identified people who she said she remembered being around uh, the night that this happened. Um, I could, and the FBI has apparently interviewed all of those witnesses, uh, including the key eyewitness, she says, to the uh, event at issue, the attempted rape. Um, you know, to talk about everybody else who was in that circle who she's, you know, she acknowledges weren't there, wouldn't have any firsthand information. I mean, how does that get you to resolving or helping the decision maker resolve the uh, specifics about the allegation that she made, talking about people who had no firsthand knowledge of anything? Well, they go to relevance to the conduct at issue and it goes to credibility so you know one one thing you learn when you're an investigator is that people behave in patterns and so the idea here is whether any part of her uh testimony can be corroborated even if it is it doesn't mean it's true but it kind of bolsters credibility and if there's nothing that's corroborated then 
you have it standing alone. So, you know, things like Judge Kavanaugh's pattern of drinking, his aggression while drinking, um, whether, you know, how he treated women, I mean, you know, to some limited degree in a circle of people that were with him a lot in that time period, that would go to whether or not, you know, what what Dr. Ford is alleging is even plausible. I mean, if, if no, so well, somebody said you know, he that... was never like that, it would come out of the blue, it, right. that would be very unlikely. Um, it also goes to, you know, if if Judge Kavanaugh has testified that he did not engage in that kind of behavior at all, and that is his right. affirmative defense, and it turns out that that's not true, um, it actually undermines his credibility um, in terms right. of the truthfulness it, of what he's saying about everything else. But in this case, you know, he did not testify that he never drank in high school. Um, so tracking down everybody with whom he drank to get conflicting accounts about how much he drank, I'm just not sure how that gets you to any of the core well, I'm not allegations sure that you looked at the list, of sexual I mean, misconduct. It's not about finding every single person, like I said, you would start with the people who were there uh, that Dr. Ford alleged. Um, you would also go to, you know, for example, there is a party um, on the calendar which has certain people that are there. I mean, and from what you know, we know, we they have interviewed you everybody. You feel like that that's calendar. not relevant, but I'm just telling yeah. you that in a normal course of investigation, you wouldn't like. It's not like you would go through the yearbook and interview every single person, but there would be people if you're really interested in getting to the truth. That is what you would do. Um, and I think if that's the relevant comparison, then that's what we're looking at. So. I mean, if you feel like what they've done is sufficient, then that's fine. I mean, maybe reasonable people can disagree, but I'm just letting you know that that's what, in my opinion, to, you know, if if this came up in the course of a background check just for, you know, a Joe Schmo, um, and somebody, like, made an allegation like this, I think they would probe uh, a few people who knew that person to find out whether this is some kind of pattern of behavior that, uh, other people were aware of, even if they couldn't corroborate the specific allegation. Um, Asha, we, we want to talk to you in a minute about how this is uh, playing out, playing on, on the Yale campus and get your perspective on that. But before, I had one uh, question about the process, which is what we've been hearing is that uh, the Senate uh, received one copy of this FBI report, and um, each senator is reviewing it individually for the most part, um, except I think on the Judiciary Committee, staffers don't have any access to it. I guess there is uh, a concern that it will leak. But uh, should, shouldn't this report uh, uh, be public? Do you think the American people have a right to actually see what's in it? Um, or is protocol that uh, these kinds of reports stay um, under wraps, um, and, and do you think that's, that's the right approach here? Well, I think in this case it's become such a matter of public interest that <clears throat> for the public to know what, if any, derogatory information was uncovered by the FBI would be helpful because then there's some baseline against which to measure the White House's judgment if they, and it looks like they have, if they decided that this doesn't make him um, unsuitable. I mean, if there's nothing there, then the White House looks like they are making the right judgment. And I think that enhances confidence, um, even if people disagree with his nomination. Ultimately, I think it protects also the integrity of the court. Um, on the other hand, if there were a, if there is derogatory information in there that tends to, 
you know, go to some of his behavior and, I, as I mentioned before, his credibility. Um, and, you know, I disagree with Michael. I think that he was incredibly evasive about his drinking, the extent of his drinking, how much he drank. Um, I mean, he, he, he said he liked beer, and he said that sometimes he drank a lot of them, but I don't think that that is responsive, really, to the question um, that was being asked by the various senators. So, you know, if if there's derogatory information there, then I think there's a way for the public to feel, to put some pressure um, on the White House. I mean, ultimately, to do this without any transparency at all will always leave a question mark on both the judge and, if he's confirmed, on the Supreme Court. And I think that's a bad thing. Asha, you were there on the uh, Yale campus. Brett Kavanaugh is a graduate of Yale College, Yale Law School. Uh, I know that when he was first nominated, uh, a lot of your colleagues at Yale uh, said uh, very positive things about uh, his nomination. What is the mood uh, right now uh, on campus and particularly among uh, your colleagues who were quite praiseworthy of Brett Kavanaugh when his name first surfaced? I think that there is a lot of concern and I believe that most of those people have now felt that that his confirmation would not be wise. And I don't know that that means that they've concluded that they, you know, believe the, you know, that this actually happened and, you know, um, that he is guilty of this, but just that the question alone um, raises questions. And I think more than that, from the law school perspective, I, there, there was a, a letter that was signed by six, like over 650 law professors from across the country that the New York Times published yesterday. And many Yale law professors were on there. I think beyond this allegation, which goes to his character and fitness, uh, it was his demeanor and his uh, partisanship at the confirmation hearing last week that I think really concerned many people in the legal field. And I, I can see why. You cannot have someone, I mean, in the judicial branch, even the perception of impartiality requires recusal. And given his diatribe at the hearing, I think his impartiality would always be questioned. He's not going to so he's not going to recuse himself from anything and if he's confirmed and he's if he's a justice on the Supreme Court and there's no way to force a uh, Supreme Court justice to, to recuse himself. So another option that you're beginning a couple of other options that you're beginning to hear people talk about um, is pursue, pursue impeachment uh, uh, proceedings against him uh, or um, uh, through legislation, add more justices to the Supreme Court, taking a playbook from FDR and packing the courts. Would you support either of those approaches? Um, you know, I think impeachment is always ultimately a political question um, in terms of, you know, what Congress wants to do. I think that there have been enough questions raised about his truthfulness under oath. I think that is a big problem. Um, and I would... What I would what I would want to see is at least some clear, you know, investigation congressionally about his answers under oath. And I think if he's found to have lied, even about minor things. I mean, I used to be the dean of admissions at Yale Law School, 
and I would counsel applicants, and I would say, you know, there's very, there are very few things in your past that will keep you out of law school because people get second chances. But if you lie about them, then you're done. And I think that that applies here, and, you know, um, you just can't have that question hanging over the Supreme Court. So if you were the director of admissions uh, when Brett Kavanaugh applied for admission to Yale College and you had heard something about the uh, uh, Christina uh, Ford allegation and he denied it and um, uh, the evidence was as it was, would you have admitted him to Yale? That's an impossible question. I I hate admissions questions because, (laughs) you know, it's, um, you know, you have to look at the totality of the circumstances. People apply with all kinds of character fitness issues, and I think that there are a lot of relevant, um, you know, things that you take into account. How long ago it occurred? Is the person contrite? Are they reflective? Are they able to take responsibility and accountability for their actions? Um, does it potentially, you know, is it, a, again, a pattern of behavior that could put, potentially put other people in danger? So all of those questions have to be answered. You might ask for an interview. Um, you might have other people weigh in. So it's just not, I mean, it would raise a red flag. I can tell you that absolutely. What I can tell you is if that was not disclosed and it came up later um, and he did not self-disclose that, that would be an automatic denial or even a revocation of admission, in my opinion. Well, of course, he denied it, and presumably he would have denied it at the time, and if you couldn't prove it, no, that's No, I'm saying if he didn't disclose sticking. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I think it's clear, uh, Asha, that uh, whatever happens, and if Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed and ends up on the Supreme Court, uh, that uh, that people will continue to investigate um, uh, this uh, this episode, and particularly if the Democrats uh, take back the House, we'll be hearing a lot more about this. Uh, and uh, we're uh, very pleased that you could join us on the show to get your insights, um, and uh, we may have you back on to talk about this, uh, or certainly not if this, then other matters. So thanks so much, uh, Asha Rangapa, no problem. for joining us on uh, Skullduggery. Yeah. Thanks a lot. going to shift gears and bring in Mark Urban, veteran diplomatic and intelligence editor for the BBC and the author of The Skripal Files. Mark, welcome to Skullduggery. It's a pleasure to be with you. So uh, this is a uh, very timely uh, and fascinating look at what remains a real spy mystery here, uh, the poisoning and attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal in uh, uh, in the UK. Uh, and you knew Skripal. You had spent time with him. Tell us how you came to meet Sergei Skripal before he became a household name and uh, what your interactions were like. Well, essentially, uh, to cut a long story short, um, I got the feeling for some time that um, there was a lot of espionage going on, uh, that it was having a lot of consequences, but that generally the public weren't that aware of it. So I thought, let's do a book about the the kind of return of Cold War-style espionage. And obviously, that's quite a big subject. So then I started looking at the swap that happened in 2010 in Vienna. 
I'm thinking, well, why don't I start and end my book there? And in the in the main body of the book, tell the stories of people who were in the airport that day and how they inform our understanding of, of this new style uh, espionage war. So uh, that's when Sergei Skripal was swapped for those folks who've been lifted by the FBI under their uh, long-running investigation, which they call ghost stories. Now, if you've seen the Americans... That's essentially a dramatized uh, version of that type of agent, the people they call illegals who were living a fake life in America. Well, let, let's they back, up a ho- sorry, I'm sorry, you, you were getting to that. I was going to say, let's back up a little bit for our listeners. And we've talked about the illegals on this program before. But tell the story uh, briefly of the illegals, the rolling up of that network and how it led to um, Skripal, being, Skripal being poisoned many all those years later. Well, essentially, um, I mean, I think we now know quite a lot uh, about uh, how it came to be that these people were found. Now, the the Soviet Union, um, historically, and Russia as as the successor or the inheritor of its intelligence services, had this long-held belief that, in a way, the most kind of... uh, important and serious area of spying were were these illegal networks. Now, of course, in the 20s and 30s, they had loads of people coming to Russia who were ideological communists. Now, they might have come from, you know, Germany or Hungary or all sorts of countries. So you could put them back into Western countries and they could pass absolutely convincingly for Germans or Spanish or whatever their original identity was, because that's what they were. But they, uh, and they had some big successes with that, including, of course, the atom bomb spy ring, uh, the guy who warned them about the uh, uh, um, German intention to invade Russia in 1941, all sorts of uh, legends, if you like, of the Soviet intelligence services. Now, when the Cold War ended, they kept going with that. And and, uh, many people in Western countries thought that was distinctly peculiar and an example of an unreformed mindset. I mean, you could get so much more uh, from the internet, and instead they were taking these people who were Russians, and they were training them sometimes for as much as 15 years in spycraft languages, trying to get them to bilingual standard, and then inf- infiltrating them. And they sort of worked out that good ways to get them into the U.S. were via South America and Canada, where, for example, they could build up what they call their legend, their false identity, and spend years. So one of the couples that was arrested in 2010 had spent years in Canada, uh, kind of building up their identity, and um, and then before they came to the U.S. and settled in the U.S. So. At the same time that this was going on, from 1999 onwards, say, they had an extraordinary spy. And he was a member of the organization that supported those illegal uh, agents, which is called Line S. Uh, It's the department within Russian foreign intelligence. And this was a man called Alexander Poteyev. And he, uh, so I hear, was a a kind of walk-in. Uh, with the FBI in New York. He was based at that time in New York, and his job was to support some of these uh, illegal agents. And he started working for the US, which meant obviously they could find them. And as things went on over the coming years, he went back to Moscow, then he came back for another tour, all sorts of things happened to this man. But he kept providing excellent intelligence, and the FBI mounted this extraordinary long-term surveillance uh, on these people, at the end of which, uh, but by the time they were ready to arrest them, they had seven Russian illegals, the wife of another, and two other Russians that included the famous uh, Anna Chapman, who were operating under their own names. They weren't technically illegals, but they were also there under so-called 
uh, non-official cover. Anna so Chapman, um, the redheaded beauty who uh, actually, and I learned this from your book, I didn't re- remember this, turns out she was at, technically not an illegal. That's right, because that was her name. She'd married an Englishman and got the name Chapman. And, uh, and um, you know, that, that was her real name. But and just to, was, Mark, uh, just, to, just to emphasize the point, because I think it's, it's something that a lot of people certainly didn't know at the time, we've only come to know uh, these many years later, that the whole FBI investigation into the legals was a result of a tip from a double agent, uh, uh, Alexander Pateov, the guy who essentially was a Russian spy who began working for the U.S., tipped off the FBI to the existence of this network of sleeper agents inside the United States. Absolutely. And, and listen, when I, was, when I was working in plan A of my book, Before the Poisoning, this Alexander Proteev was a pretty central character in what I was working on. Um, and in a sense, uh, the, the scope of the FBI investigation increased as he rose up the organization. So when he was initially in New York in the late 90s and he offered his services to the FBI, he was a guy just dealing with South America. So the first one they, they got a bead on was a guy who was calling himself Juan Lazaro. Now, he, I mean, we really are going into ancient history there. He, he had left Russia to begin building up his legend in 1983. I mean, that's how long he'd been living a double life. Uh, coming to, to South America, he married a lady in Peru, a Peruvian lady, and they then moved to New York. Uh, and then as Poteev rose higher up the system, he gained a wider knowledge. And then, of course, as he did, the FBI's investigation uh, became a wider investigation. And by watching some of these folks, they, they discovered others and in the end uh, ended up with this set of them that they decided to arrest in 2010. All right. So we got one guy, Pateoff, who is uh, who's the FBI tipster and then disappears after um, uh, the illegal operation is is rolled up. The, well, just before, in fact. Or, or just course, before. Because, okay. So Yeah, that seems to be the trigger for the whole thing. Right. We don't actually know why he left Moscow, uh, but maybe, you know, he'd been doing it for long enough. Maybe the FBI just decided enough already right. uh, that they had their own reasons for wanting to wind up such a long-running and complex investigation. So, so they had to get him out. I guess my point is, so after we arrest these spies, the, the sleeper agents inside the United States, the Russians want them back. And the but wait, wait, before we get to that, um, isn't it, uh, he, he is extra, uh, our, our source, the FBI's source, is, uh, is uh, extrafated out of, out of uh, Russia, Russia, and he's right? in the U.S. And, and right. brought to the United States. Right, right, right. Okay, so That's the right. Russians want their spies back, uh, and hence the spy swap uh, that leads to the release of Sergei Skripal. Absolutely. And three other individuals. And, and three others. Right. And tell us about Sergei Skripal, his history, and how he um, uh, came to be a spy for the UK's uh, MI6. Well, he was a man, uh, you might see him in a way, as a sort of archetypical Russian officer uh, of, his, of his generation, Uh, I mean, he'd grown up in the 50s and 60s. He'd gone to military school in Kaliningrad uh, and gone into the engineer troops, but very quickly gone into the airborne engineers. 
Uh, and then from there, he'd gone into the GRU, which is Russian military intelligence. And he'd had a posting in Malta, uh, lasting a few years, um, gone home for a bit, and then gone to Spain. Now, he arrived in Spain in 1993, and it was pretty near the end of his posting. He was due to go home in September of 96, so it was pretty much a three-year posting. Uh, it was pretty near the end that uh, MI6, in, in the word the trade, pitched him. Uh, and effectively suggested that he should work for them. Um, and, you know, as to how he got to that point where he was receptive to that offer, well, I think that was quite a long story. But I think like a lot of Russian military guys of his age, he felt very disillusioned about the collapse of the USSR. Uh, that had happened in 91, a few years before. Uh, you know, they, everyone was then suffering from the effects of hyperinflation. You know, he was he was trying to support not only his own immediate family, but his mother and his, you know, his brother's family and all sorts of other people. So when you got how, how is it you got to talk to him in 2017, a couple of years ago? Well, um, I'm not going to tell you entirely how, but essentially having having fixed upon him as a significant person in this uh in this sort of planned book I had, which frankly was a project I was I was picking up and putting down for the best part of two years, um, there was no deadline. Um, I thought, well, let's find this guy. Now, actually, uh, Skripal was quite findable, as we were, you know, tragically to learn later, uh, for a number of reasons, because he was on the electoral roll, uh, which is, you know, our like register of, of householders in this country. So public uh, record. Under his own name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, under his own name. Uh, and that was quite different to, for example, Oleg Gordievsky or Vladimir Kozichkin, Alexander Litvinenko, other people who'd come to this country and been taken care of by the intelligence services had, had not are not under their own names. Um, and, that, and that's, you know, effectively how I found him. So, um, you know, we had a meeting... Um, we, we, you know, sort of got on okay. Um, that was on sort of neutral ground. Um, and then the decision was taken, yeah, you know, come around and talk. And um, the next ones were, were in his home. Uh, Mark, I'd like you to draw a little more um, clearly or expansively the connection between Poteyev um, and Skripal, because it goes beyond uh, the, the swap you report or you theorize uh, in your book that there is a more clear uh, connection between uh, the the Russians uh, going after Puteyev in the United States and eventually the poisoning of Sergei Skripal. So explain that. Yeah, I mean they're not um, they're not um, they weren't bosom buddies or anything like that. They worked in different organizations. I mean, there's an interesting parallel that both men were involved. Uh, covertly in Afghanistan before the Russian invasion, I did ask him. Um, I did ask Sergei whether he knew Potev, and he said no. Um, but of course, subsequently they they were to become linked, particularly in the minds of those in Moscow who felt that traitors should not be allowed to get away with it. And if you look at um, you know if you look at that uh, period of the mid two thousands or something that that sort of era, a few years back. Uh, you know, there weren't that many of these individuals. The Russians weren't catching that many. And then, of course, Poteyev defected in 2010. Huge damage to, to the Russian intelligence 
service. I mean, not just those folks in the, in the US, those illegals, but in other countries too, where things were dealt with a bit more quietly. So a whole global agent was, uh, network was rolled up. Uh, obviously at that point, and, and you may have seen the video of, of uh, Vladimir Putin reacting with absolute cold fury uh, to what had happened, uh, he became, if you like, public enemy number one. And in that sense, you can say, obviously, he, he was far more of a target than Sergei Skripal because he'd done this huge amount of damage. Uh, he defected. And of course, Sergei had been arrested. He'd spent several years in jail. And in theory, he'd been pardoned by presidential pardon in 2010. So, of course, Puteyev was, was in a higher category if he wanted to make an example of someone who'd betrayed the motherland. Now, interestingly, a few weeks back, the New York Times ran a story saying that a Russian hitman had been detected in Florida in 2014 or maybe 2015. Now, they didn't name the person but uh, who he was targeting, but I knew that it was Poteyev and I was able to get that confirmed. And then I'd found out as well, um, who knows, maybe that mission was successfully frustrated by the FBI or the agency, whoever. And the guy went home, presumably having not found Poteyev. But I then discovered that in 2016, uh, there had been this information operation in which they had planted a story that Poteyev had died. And I was told when I was writing the book that the idea was that he would get in touch with some friend or relative and say, hey, you know, this is rubbish. Uh, I'm still very much alive. Uh, and that that might, through interception of those friends or relatives and their communications, give them an email account or a phone number, some start point for a new operation where they could find him. So, the evidence is there that they'd been trying uh, to get Patev. Uh And that, in a sense, is part of the build-up to what then happened in Salisbury. So your theory, as I understand it, is that Patev was the primary target for Russian intelligence. And uh, that's the guy they really wanted. That's the guy who was number one on Putin's list uh, as, a, as a traitor to the country. And that's significant on a number of levels. Uh, number one, there's been this debate within the U.S. intelligence and law enforcement community for many years about whether the Russians would actually commit an assassination on U.S. soil. Clearly, they did it on U.K. soil. Clearly, they've done it elsewhere in the world. But we really haven't seen hard evidence of a Russian hit inside the United States uh, for decades, going back to, I think, pre-World War II days. Um, but if your uh, theory is correct here, at least the Russians were trying to assassinate Pateyov uh, inside the United States as late as 2016. Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, if you believe... If you believe um people in the U.S. intelligence community, and obviously the New York Times had that story. Uh, they seemed to feel it was genuine that, that this person was there to, to do harm to him. But I think, I think the implication of your question is right. Um, carrying out an operation like that in America uh, involved an altogether different level of risk, um, political risk uh, and security risk, I think, for Russia, because um, you know, if they'd succeeded in um, targeting Poteyev uh, and killing him, uh, I mean, the consequences could have been extraordinary. Uh, one one name that we have not mentioned uh, uh, heretofore is Putin. Um, and 
uh, I think his his role in all of this is is fascinating, um, and it does go to the whole question of of motive uh, in the Skripal case. Um, and it seems to me, I mean, you alluded to this before, actually, but it seems to me that um, uh, Putin, um, based on his public pronouncements, um, has had every motive uh, to go after uh, Skripal uh, as well. And what I found fascinating, uh, and I did not remember this, or perhaps didn't know it, that Putin himself was a, when he was stationed in um, uh, in Berlin, in, uh, in East Germany uh, during uh, during uh, the uh, still the, the end of the Cold War, uh, was a member of Line S or Department S and was, part of his job was supporting illegals. Uh, and that he would have viewed uh, this as just the, the, just enraged by the betrayal um, that he was seeing. I think that's right. I mean, look, if if I want to argue counter to what you've said, some of the people who, uh, if you like, um, spin for Russia or, or, you know, want to put a positive context on what he's what he said will argue. Well, when he made these examples, uh, made these statements about they would choke on their 30 pieces of silver, uh, even, you know, with what he said today, that he said other things along the lines of, we didn't kill this person or we didn't try to kill this person, but they're despicable, that sort of thing, that he's distanced himself. He he said back in 2010, oh, we don't, we no longer have an assassination department in our intelligence service, but these people will, will come to an end, you know, a, a bad end, trust me, that sort of thing. So he tries to distance himself. The problem is, uh, you know, <laughs> There's just been quite a few people who he uh, who have basically been murdered in Russia, political murders, other kinds of murders where, you know, there's been suspected official involvement and you get this sort of dual language, which is denial on the one hand, but then denigration of the person uh, and saying that they were, you know, thoroughly rotten people or another version of it, a little bit of which was projected today was, oh, this person wasn't worth killing, which you know, I mean, imagine a, a Western politician responding by, like that. You know, I mean, it, it, it's an extraordinary thing to, to sort of say. Let's go to the core question, which is, you know, why uh, they tried to assassinate Skripal when they did. It, it was he'd been living quietly in, in, in the UK for more than seven years. Uh, he was not like Litvinenko, a public critic of Putin who was trying to uh, uh, who was in his face uh, uh, denouncing the uh, the Putin government um, why go after this guy after so many years I, I, I think it's a complex combination of you know as I said before uh, aspiration versus attainability or, or, or availability and because um, uh, Skripal was findable and because his son and daughter were regularly traveling back and forth which gave opportunities for intercepting his communications or rather their communications with him but knowing where he'd be at a particular time um, he, he, he was very tempting in that sense now some people have said wow that was crazy you know on the eve of the World Cup or on the eve of, of the election but you know even some Kremlin political analysts have said since it happened oh, this uh, Salisbury thing played out pretty well uh, for President Putin because he was worried about voter apathy. He was worried that people would be angry about uh, cost of living increases, pensions, various other things. And Salisbury successfully diverted people 
uh, onto Russophobia and why is everybody always blaming us for this and, you know, we need to pull together. Uh, so, you know, extraordinarily, uh, you get political analysts quite openly making that type of argument in Russia, even while Russia officially denies responsibility. But you you do suggest that there was uh, it would have been deep animus uh, towards Skripal because of some of what he revealed to British intelligence, particularly the corruption uh, within the FSB itself, going all the way up to uh, a guy named Nikolai uh, Patrushev, who was the head of the FSB, a close crony of Vladimir Putin, is now the head of the Russian Security Council. Yes, I mean, what we what we know and, and what Sergei told me, which uh, until the book appeared was completely unknown, was that there was another GRU officer who made the decision to spy for the West at around about the same time, just after Sergei. So this would have been sometime probably late in 1996. Uh, and this guy in the book, uh, he's given a pseudonym for various reasons, but he was a naval officer working for the GRU, who was working under a civilian cover in, in Madrid. Now, this other person, he uh, uh, ran the scientific and technical intelligence gathering, which in layman's terms was a kind of way of going to, on shopping sprees for bits of technology that Russian arms makers or other industries wanted to get hold of. And the Russians have a long record of this, buying up the latest computer or trying to bribe a soldier to give them the latest night vision goggles, whatever it is, acquiring bits of Western technology. Uh, now, this other officer was involved in this, but he was involved in diversion of funds. Uh, and uh, um, Captain Bulatov, as I call him in the book, uh, he knew that if he was going to do that kind of thing, he needed some top cover. So he was paying off uh, a general back in Moscow to look the other way. And he in turn, so it is claimed, uh, by Sergei was paying off Patrushev. So that when the two of them were caught, and this other man, the naval captain, Bulatov, was caught first, uh, the, the consensus or, or the theory is that he tried to, to bargain with that knowledge, which got him murdered in jail. Uh, Mark, before we, we wrap up here, I, uh, I'd like to step back a little bit um, and um, you know, put this story, this Gripal story, in the sort of larger context of these uh, spy wars uh, that have reemerged between Russia and the West. Um, I think I read a while ago in the New York Times that there are more Russian spies in London now than there were at the height of the Cold War. I don't know if that's true, but what's going on? Well, it's, it's an aggressive um, competition for influence, for secret information. Um, you know, there's a set of people at the head of, of Russia. I mean, we're not just talking about President Putin, but many of the other people he's put in place who are these so-called Siloviki, the people who came up through the power organization, secret police, military, and so on. Uh, and they still have a view of the world in which this type of competition for information, for secrets, for espionage is pretty central to their worldview. Uh, and, you know, uh, let's be honest, uh, the US, UK, and some of the other Western countries have been spying back pretty hard as well. I mean, mm -hmm. initially their excuse, uh, you know, during the Yeltsin years of chaos was, oh, no, the whole place might go belly up. We don't want nuclear weapons going astray. 
Now it's a different kind of uh, espionage battle, and it's, a, it's, it's about penetrating those organizations and finding out what they're doing because they're so central to the Putin power base. And uh, just to put this in the larger context, uh, especially in the wake of we're still investigating here in the U.S. what happened in the 2016 election. But you do make the larger point that uh, this is the the Skripal poisoning is in the context of a, uh, a pattern by the Kremlin of taking greater and greater risks to advance its interests abroad the uh, the the meddling in the uh, in the 2016 election in the U.S. is but one example, but there are lots of others. Absolutely. Well, I think in, for many people, the shooting down of that Malaysian airliner over over uh, Ukraine, in which you know nearly 300 people lost their lives, is the most salient one because of the the scale of the human tragedy. But I mean, that is an actual difference, I think, from from Cold War One. I mean, the, the the Soviet communists were in certain ways very risk averse. I mean, sure, they were implacable ideological foes of the West and they wanted to work for its destruction, whereas you can argue that Putin and, and the people around him are semi-capitalists in their, in their outlook, their economic outlook and ideological outlook. But they were more risk averse, those old communists who ran the Soviet Union. And some of these things that have happened in the last few years, I think, would have been absolutely unthinkable to them. Uh, and this is why I think many people, you know, who I talk to in the, in the security world, in the defense world, regard our times as being more unstable and dangerous uh, than those times. Well, not notwithstanding the differences, um, uh, everybody loves a good spy versus spy story. Uh, and uh, we uh, we thank you for coming on, Skullduggery. Uh, we wish you the best of luck with the book. And uh, I have a feeling um, the story does not end here. And maybe we'll have you back. <laughs> with pleasure. Okay. okay. Well, thank you very Thanks, much. Mark. Uh, Mark Urban, and the book is The Skripal Files, The Life and near death of a Russian spy. When we come back, we'll talk to Dan Hoffman, a former Moscow station chief for the CIA, who was responsible for the spy swap of Sergei Skripal. We are now joined uh, by a uh, old friend of ours who knows more about the Skripal case than probably anybody in the U.S., Dan Hoffman, the former Moscow station chief for the CIA. Dan, um, welcome back for a third time to Skullduggery. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, now, look, you played such a key role in the events that we just talked about with uh, Mark Urban, um, starting with uh, the spy swap that led to Skripal's release um, in exchange for the uh, illegals who were arrested by the FBI in 2010. Um, and um, as you know, in, uh, in Mark's book, um, you were identified as the guy who arranged the spy swap. Yeah, I, I will tell you, it's, um, it's uh, kind of odd for me to see my name in print that way. Normally, um, at the agency, uh, the things that we do are secret and stay secret. But the the swap, the the arrest of the illegals, and the swap was really a public event in a way that uh, normally things just don't take place between the United States and Russia at the bilateral level. There are lots of things that are overt, but certainly not um, when uh, intelligence is involved. But in this case, you know, the illegals were arrested. That was a Department of Justice matter, and there was 
full coverage, uh, certainly in the United States and Russia, about the idea that there would be a swap and full coverage about those who were freed from Siberian uh, labor camps where they all probably would have taken their last breath. Uh, Mark is, I will tell you, an exceptional um, investigative journalist, and it's no small feat to establish significant rapport and trust with someone like Sergei Skripal, who was raised not to trust journalists. And I, I have to tip my hat to Mark uh, for a job well done. Well, that sounds like an attitude uh, many in the U.S. have about, especially these days, about not trusting journalists. But um, uh, getting to the uh, uh, to the larger uh, uh, point that uh, Mark is making in the book, uh, it goes to a question uh, we have discussed on this show before. In fact, right after the Skripal poisoning, which is why? Why would the Russians, after so many years? Uh, go after this guy who was living quietly in the uh, in the UK in Salisbury, uh, uh, practically eight years after you arranged for his release. And uh, Mark has a couple of uh, provocative theories about it, uh, starting with just how much. Uh, how much information he provided to the Brits about corruption within the FSB, uh, and also the idea that he may not have been the number one target for Putin and the Kremlin. Right. Um, So I think certainly uh, exposing Russia's massive level of corruption, including with former director FSB uh, Patrushev, definitely uh, brought Putin's ire, and 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 certainly encouraged Putin to to aim his sights on Skripal. That's for sure. Uh, the last thing Vladimir Putin would want is that sort of negative publicity. Um, and what it means, and the reason why, is because it makes it harder for him to govern inside Russia. It's all about regime security. And when the guys in the FSB or and the SVR or GRU see that there is corruption at high levels like that, then they wonder, as they did in the 1990s, which is what Mark writes about related to Sergei Skripal, they wonder, well, why, why am I taking on this low state salary while Patrushev is skimming so much money from the state coffers? I don't like that very much. And then they think of other ways to earn money, and sometimes that involves espionage, stealing secrets on behalf of, of NATO countries, for example. So that's certainly one issue for Putin. And then I think the timing of uh, the attack on Skripal and the method certainly indicated, look, Putin could have done this um, misattributably or non-attributably practically had he just uh, made it look like a bar fight or someone could have run him over, Skripal over with a lorry. But he used Novichok. Essentially, this was a discoverable operation, not unlike the attacks on our social networking and media sites. Uh, with the Kremlin return address at the Internet Research Agency or the Trump Tower meeting in 2016. Putin wanted his own people to know it, because he wants them to know that if they step out of line, he's going to kill them. Uh, and he also wanted to draw, uh, increase the level of antipathy between the U.K. and, by extension, NATO and Russia in advance of his own March election, um, knowing full well that that would drive voters to the polls, and it did. He got his 70% voter turnout, which was his goal. Uh, that's pretty Machiavellian, but... Vladimir Putin's a KGB right. guy, and that's kind of the way he operates. But uh, Dan um, uh, Isakov alluded to another uh, the- yes. theory of the case here, which is that Alexander uh, Poteyev, uh, who we just talked about, 
this defector um, who fingered, uh, identified the, uh, the, the so-called um, illegals in the United States uh, to the FBI, allowing the FBI to roll them up, that he was the number one target, um, but they couldn't find him. Um, and so they just went down the line, and the next, the next in line was, uh, uh, was um, Skripal. Skripal. Does that yeah, it, theory... It, it, it's, certainly, it's certainly possible that, that Vladimir Putin has a kill list. I'm sure he does. And defectors would be high on that list. Remember when Vladimir Putin has given multiple in, interviews over the years. The most recent one was on the eve of his election when he did two two-hour um, interviews as part of a, I say this loosely called documentary, where there was a sycophant journalist asking him questions. And the journalist asked Putin if he could forgive anything, and Putin said, yeah, and then he kind of leaned back with a Cheshire grin and said, nah, just not predictive to treachery. Uh, so he's, he's interested in, in exacting revenge on, uh, on as many of these guys as he can find. And the poisoning of Skripal, I'm sure, was ringing alarm bells for all of us, all of the countries who are hosting uh, high-level defectors whom Putin would want to target. And... I think there's no question that that uh, that you know enhanced security measures are in order to protect those folks. Um, what's what I find so interesting about the uh, Pateyev uh, angle here is there was this Russian news agency report uh, on July seventh, two thousand sixteen, right in the middle of the U.S. election, uh, that uh, Pateyev. The defector who was under FBI witness protection program protection uh, and who had fingered the illegals was dead. And now from as as Mark Urban reports in his book, he wasn't dead, isn't dead. I've been told the same thing by many by multiple sources. But this was uh, to use a phrase in the law enforcement uh, world, tickling the wire. The Russians were trying to find him and they thought by putting this story out, it would create some buzz. Family members, friends would start to talk and that might figure out, might lead the Russians to the location of Pateyev in the United States. Yeah, you know, you're 100% right. Uh, it's a not uncommon practice in uh, law enforcement and other operations to try to induce um, some sort of activity, whether in this, in this day and age, you know, cyber activity, emails and then phone calls. Um, and that's certainly one way to do it. Um, and I certainly wouldn't put it past the Russians to run that sort of an operation. The, the idea would be to target those who are not so sophisticated in the um, the M.O. of Russian intelligence services to understand that this is just a ruse when, in fact, um, that's what it would have been. And, and it's it's typical of the Russians to do that sort of thing. Uh, for them, you know, uh, whatever angst they might cause someone, and, and people could fall ill if they heard stories like this, but that doesn't matter. For them, the ends justify the means. But, Dan, uh, the, I mean, the premise of, the, of this theory is that is that the Russians would have hunted down uh, someone that they considered a traitor in the United States on U.S. soil and uh, assassinated that person, uh, potentially, uh, which is something that uh, they've done in other countries, right. notably in the U.K., uh, but not in the United States. Uh, what is right. your, given your background and your experience, what is your best um, 
judgment so as you, to whether whether they would do that. Was that a bridge too far for, for even for Putin? There is no bridge too far for Vladimir Putin. If you look at all the norms he's broken, uh, first time post World War II invading two countries and changing the map of Europe, Ukraine and Georgia, the massive cyber attack on Estonia, obviously annexation of Crimea, as I mentioned, uh, unprecedented uh, interference, not meddling, but interference in our election, um, and the massive um, just uh, espionage operations he's running against us all worldwide, the poisoning of Litvinenko and of um, and of Skripal. Um, Vladimir Putin is a throwback to Stalin. You know, um, he's 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 going to do anything he can get away with until we counter his attacks on us. That's what deterrence is all about. It's about telling the Russians that if they take steps, if they go too far with what they're doing, we're going to wrap them on the knuckles and make them feel a lot of pain. But then we've got to do that. You may recall that one of our diplomats in summer 2016 was attacked walking into the embassy, and the Obama administration did nothing about it. All that did was embolden Putin. He said, okay, I've shown the world what I can do to a U.S. diplomat inside Moscow, and I'm going to keep moving forward with these sorts of aggressive operations uh, worldwide against my enemies. In the United States, we're his main enemy. Um, and because we haven't countered him, we really, don't, we really haven't deterred um, his attacks against us. So there's no doubt in my mind that Putin and, and, and his intelligence services, which are quite capable, uh, and that's one lesson that the illegals operation taught us, that they would seek to obtain information about where defectors are located and then surveil them with an eye towards attacking them. Um, the, uh, as you look at the way the Trump administration has responded, we have this uh, to the Russian aggression, certainly in the 2016 election and 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 elsewhere around the world, um, we have this dichotomy. On the one hand, uh, people will say, "Well, you know, we've we've stiffened sanctions as a result of congressional pressure, but we've done so. Treasury has sanctioned a whole lot of um, uh, high-level Russians. Uh, we've taken other measures, and yet we have a president who." continues to seem to make apologies for Putin and put uh, better relations with Russia as, as a higher priority. Um, how do you sort out uh, that sort of double and contradictory track we seem to be on with the Russians right now? And um, I know you go on Fox News a bit and where they're all Trump friendly. But uh, what do you say to the folks who think that our president is undermining what our policy should be? Well, I, when I was in Helsinki, uh, I said that I thought, you know, the president could have been more forceful with Putin and, and called him out for his um, attacks on our democracy. That's and a think, bit of an understatement, <laughs> wouldn't you say? Tom? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, well, I think it, but it just gets to my point about the, the idea that, that if, if you're going to take countermeasures against them, and one of those, some of those countermeasures we've talked about now are cyber operations at the point of attack. So if the Internet Research Agency is mounting cyber attacks against us, we can go out and make them inoperable. But before you do that, you need to tell Vladimir Putin that we are going to take those, take that action. Otherwise, it's not going to be very effective. And they also may misinterpret what we're doing. 
Um, there's no doubt that the administration, I mean, it doesn't, I think the way I would look at it is from the Russian perspective, is it a monolith? No, the president is doing with Russia what he's doing with North Korea, which is trying to establish a positive relationship with um, the ruthless dictator of that country. You can argue about the merits of that, and you have. Um, then you've got Ambassador Bolton, who is speaking out very forcefully, called Russia's attack on our elections an act of war. And you've got Fiona Hill in the White House, uh, someone who keeps a very low public profile, but who's, in my estimation, for sure having a huge impact on our Russia policy, which has been very forceful, as you pointed out, um, during the administration. So there are some mixed messages out there. Um, and the, the key, I think, for us, if I were in the intelligence community, would be to parse out what that actually means to the Kremlin. What, is, what does it mean to Vladimir Putin? And is he trying to drive a wedge between the president and the Congress? I think he is sometimes trying to do that, or drive a wedge between the president and some of his key administration officials. And then does that even matter in terms of our policy? Uh, good questions to be asking for sure. Well, I have to—you brought up Fiona Hill, so I've got to uh, make a plug here for uh, Yahoo News' very own um, uh, uh, Alex Nazarian, who did a terrific profile of— uh, Fiona Hill, the Russia specialists um, in the yeah, White I House. Yeah, I read that. It um, was extraordinarily well done and uh, a, a, a fitting tribute to someone who is, in my view, um, unquestionably the number one best Russia expert we've got. And it says a lot that she's in the White House um, managing our Russia strategy. Well, she didn't that, want to be interviewed. as you. She is extremely under the radar. She wants to stay that way, um, probably because uh, she might not be able to have the kind of influence I guess she has in the White House if she were more high profile. So, um, uh, hey, um, Dan, the sort of final question here. Uh, we are all awaiting um, what Robert Mueller is going to finally do in his uh, uh, sprawling investigation. Uh, and, um, you know, we've had some pretty uh, detailed indictments of those uh, GRU officers in the Internet Research Agency. Um, but, you know, a lot of people think we're going to we're getting into the fourth quarter here. and We're going to probably see some climactic moves after the election. Now, uh, what's your uh, what are you expecting? Gosh, it's so hard to predict. I mean, I just based on what we know. Uh, there were, there's a lot of facts out there to digest. Contact between Russian intelligence and Trump campaign um, official Carter Page, and of course the Papadopoulos story, which is out there. Uh, and uh, General Flynn, I guess, is going to be sentenced uh, later In December. this year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so there's just there's a lot out there, and. It's, it's premature to make any assessment yet on what we've got because the Mueller investigation, I think Fiona Hill has a low profile. It's, with the exception of those indictments, um, we haven't really seen a whole lot. I think we need to, to wait and let the facts you know, present themselves, and then we can make an assessment about what we've got um, in terms of what has been discovered. And, and at the end of the day, what I would emphasize, just from my own perspective, and I'll admit it's the optic of somebody who served five years in Russia, but it's the, the bad guys are in the Kremlin. Uh, they hate the Democrats. They hate the Republicans. They want to destroy our country. And what I hope is that that we can arrive at some sort of a bi 
bipartisan consensus, which I used to remember sometimes seeing in the 1980s, uh, <laughs> that Russia is the threat, and together we need to harden our defenses. We need to hold people accountable for their misdeeds, including our own citizens, but we need to harden our defenses together against the enemy, which is Russia. Uh, well, on uh, that note, um, we'll let you go uh, with the proviso that we're going to have you back for a fourth time on Skullduggery, maybe after we get the results of the Mueller investigation. I think that would be great. I look forward to it. Okay. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. All right. Take care. Pleasure. Thanks to Asha Rangappa, Mark Urban, and Dan Hoffman for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays at 10 p.m. and then Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. We'll talk to you next week. 